Welcome back. This is Conversation 12. We'll call this the turning point. Bob's requested by Pat Marcy to defend a friend of the mob's son who's accused of assaulting a female police officer. After this trial, Bob has a conversation with Marcy in that mysterious hallway outside of Counselor's Row. And there's a moment in that conversation where something happens to Bob, and it begins what I'd call the latter half of his life. Here's that conversation. Bob, tell us about the Mike Colella defense and what happened afterward that spurned you to go talk to the feds. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've had formed a new partnership with Leroy Lemke, and I'm out on the south side of 58th and Archer. I, I get a, I get a client that comes in one day. Uh, Mike Colella's dad comes in with Mike. Comes in there, and he indicates he's been charged with aggravated battery. He had three cases. He'd been arrested out in Cicero. He was charged with battery and he was charged with resisting arrest. He also had been charged with a battery for a fight he got into up in up in one of the uh, northern suburbs. And he had been arrested and charged with uh, beating up a policewoman. Well, when he came in, he was high. I basically told the father, I can't help you, I said. And I told the dad that, uh, and I told him I, I wasn't going to represent him until he got cleaned up. I said, and if he gets cleaned up, then you can come back, but I'm not going to deal with him under these conditions because he was just being a complete jackass. I, I had no idea who the man was when he came in. And the reason he came in, I, I apparently represented some of Mike Colella's uh, friends. I, I had represented some other people. He lived out there in the Elmwood Park area. It turns out the father was a baker. And he was very friendly with a lot of the mob people. He had a big bakery out there, and he was apparently very friendly with, I think, Ayupa and Arcardo and those people. He came back after a couple of weeks, and Mike was like a different person, obviously. He sent him off to one of these uh, rehab places. The story he tells me, and I don't doubt him, he was drunk, and he was out there right alongside the Oak Park area, just the west of Chicago. He said he was he was uh, looking to pick up a hooker is what he was doing there, and he gets stopped by a policewoman. When he gets stopped and, uh, and she's going to place him under arrest, he, like, pulls away. She calls for an assistance, and about five or six policemen show up, and they wind up beating the hell out of him. During the melee, she somehow gets injured. And that's the story he tells me. And when I saw them, and having been a policeman and been involved in a lot of these things, I didn't doubt it. In fact, the reports indicated he was taken to the hospital because he was bleeding all over the place. I told him I would represent him. And a couple of days later, I get a call from Pat Marcy. You know, I hadn't talked to him in a couple of years. Other than, you know, when I'm walking through counselors, I would still say hi to those people. I get a call from Pat, and, and he tells me to come on in. Now, Greylord had, had broken broken out now a couple of years before this. As far as I was concerned, that was fantastic because I would build my reputation even more because I could go in and win all my cases on the up and up. I hadn't been involved in any kind of uh, bribery or anything for a good two, three years. And he tells me that the case will be taken care of and we'll let you handle it. I says, Pat, this is a case that's all over the newspapers. I said, you know, I can win this case. I'm sure I can win this case. I know all the facts and I know that they're going to come into court and they're going to obviously lie about about what happened. 
I said, I can win this case. And he said, no, he said, the case will be taken care of. It was up before Judge Passarella, who I didn't like myself. I just didn't like him. Uh, I had seen him over at counselors one time, uh, obviously to see Pat Marcy, because he's there at the, sitting at the first ward table waiting. It was around five o'clock or so waiting for Pat to come down. And, and I had said to him, you know, are you waiting for Pat? And he just said to me, Pat who, or whatever, some smart aleck answer. So I just didn't like the guy. He says the case is going to be taken care of and we'll quote unquote, we'll let you handle it. And, uh, and I just didn't want to, uh, you know, I knew I could win the cases. So the father never mentioned a word about anything with Pat or whatever, or Pat getting involved in it. What I did was I told the father, let me get rid of one of those cases first. I took the Cicero case to trial with a jury. I got a, I got a not guilty on it. Then I get a call from Pat and he says, why, you know, why aren't you bringing the case to trial? And I lied to Pat. I told him, I said, the prosecutors aren't ready yet. Whereas I'm telling the prosecutors, I need a special prosecutor on it. I'm telling him that, you know, I want to put, I want to dispose of the other cases first, the other two cases. When I won the first case, Mike Royko uh, gets a hold of me. He said, uh, what's going on with, you know, with, with the other case with Mike Colella? He's got a second case. He says, I saw you won the case out there in Cicero. When is that case coming up in Elmwood Park? Uh, that was the fight in the bar where he had apparently had beaten up somebody. And I, I lied to Mike and I told Mike it was coming up about a week after it, it was coming up. I didn't need to, I didn't need to go into court, have Mike sitting in there and the jury would realize this thing really, this guy's really something interesting. I wanted to go in there and not have these people realize who Mike, you know, who this Mike Colella was. The same one that was all over the front pages of the newspaper. Now, were you friends with Royko? Not, you know, not, not friends. You know, I knew him and, uh, and he knew me. I can tell you an interesting story about that. You know, what I found out, Mike White was the one that was always talking about the first ward being mobbed up and Johnny DiArco, Johnny DiArco. I had met him a number of times when he wanted to talk to me about, you know, about some other cases that I had. He was very, very interested in the mob stuff. You know, we were, you know, we were just casual friends, let's say. I, I, and I lied and I told him that it was coming up, you know, a week after it was. And I go in there and I win that case. And now I'm meeting with Pat. And I'm, I'm, when I'm in counselors, Pat, what's going on? Because it's been going on now for a long period of time. He wants to you know, do the case because he'll obviously he'll make some money with that. But anyhow, and I keep saying, Pat, I can win this with a jury. And he says, you're going to do what you're told. And he had never talked to me like that before. You're going to do what you're told. I reluctantly, you know, I go along with it. I have to. We go in there. We put the case on. I had a great, it was a great case for the defense. The policewoman lied. Uh, the policemen there all lied. They said, among other things, you know, Mike Colella was never injured. He was never hurt. He was never bleeding, which is a total lie. I had the, I had the hospital reports there. When they, when they took him into the police station, they wouldn't take him in because he was all beaten up. I mean, they lied about what happened. And I'm, I'm sure I know what happened. What happened was when, when they were busy clubbing Mike with the baton, somebody hit her in the face, you know, and broke, I think they broke her nose or broke her jaw or something. When the case was over, and I have no idea why, that was an interesting courtroom the Judge Passarella had. It was the only one in the building like that, where as you walk in the front door, there's a glass partition there. You've got room for about maybe 15, 20 people to sit in this section. Then you've got this glass partition. You've got a microphone set up in the, in the courtroom. And they have his chambers 
And if you come out of his chambers and you go to the left, you have to walk up like there were like three steps. His desk or whatever you want to call it is is up there. What he does when the case is over, let me review my notes and the rest of it. And, and I had put on a great case. And he comes walking back out. He shuts off the microphone and he says a couple of words and he says not guilty. And he all but runs, <laughs> runs off the bench in the back behind the glass partition. All, you had all kinds of policemen there. You had the media there. Outside in the hall, there were about 20 or 30 people out there. When he does that, you can hear the people out there. I'm in, I'm, I'm in the courtroom itself. You can hear the people out there making all kinds of noise. What the hell's going on and whatever. And as I come walking out of there, a couple of them are yelling at me. You should be ashamed of yourself. You know, most of them knew I was an ex-policeman. And uh, you should be ashamed of yourself and whatever. That reaction and, uh, is that you're essentially a turncoat. Yes. Yes. Uh, again, I would never, I would never have gotten involved. If I thought for a second uh, he had done what they said he had done, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't be representing him. But I felt that you know, he had gotten the hell beat out of him. And, but anyhow, when we go back to counselor's row, I never, we had never talked again about what I was going to charge for this. Because Pat Marcy's obviously involved. Now, he's never once said a word to me about, you know, about Pat. And what I found out, too, afterwards, which was interesting, was Mike Colella uh, had a friend of his, say, a probation officer. Pat, at one time, you know, prior to the case going to trial, had me meet with him. And uh, and he was going to get me whatever, whatever help I needed in terms of reports or, or other stuff. When I go back to see Pat, I see him in counselor's row as I walk in. And he walks out and he goes back into the same into, you know, I, I think I talked to you about on the Harry Alleman case when I got paid. Maybe I didn't. When I got paid on the Harry Alleman case, we walked back into the janitor's closet behind, you know, at the, at the, at the very end of uh, the counselor's row lobby. And, and he stood there, steps leading up to the, uh, to the commodity exchange. And he stood on those steps. And when he did, uh, you know, when he did, he's, he, he looks down at me because he's a, you know, a little bit taller than me now, standing in the steps, and he hands me the money for the Harry Alleman case. We walk in there. He's standing on the same steps, and he hands me and he hands me an envelope just like he had done with the Harry Alleman case. And I said to him, I said, Pat, this judge is going to have a problem. Problem. I said the media was there. You know, this case has been all over TV. It's going to be a major, a major thing. He could have some serious problems. And what if he? What if he? You know, what if he beefs on you? And he looks at me and he said, nobody would dare. He said, nobody would dare cooperate. Uh, they know what would happen. And as I stood there, I'm, I'm looking at him. I had been tempted because I saw so many things that just disgusted me. Uh, I had thought about going in, but then I said, what are you crazy? And I, and I never did. That was one of the things that, uh, that definitely made me decide. And it was really ironic too, because as I'm thinking, you know, you may be looking at somebody that will, I'm kind of thinking he can read my mind as I'm looking at him. Don't ask me why, but I mean, I had some real strange feelings. Did you ever that, feel that way before around Marcy or any of these guys, or was just specifically that moment you had this no, spidey this, sense that, or this, this sixth sense that he could look inside your soul or inside your thoughts? That he's that he's that powerful that you know you no know, I had never I had never had any kind of a feeling like that before 
and been with him for, you know, involved with him for years. But no, what had also happened over a period of time, when I started having dreams and, and other things, I should have been killed probably four or five times in my life. The first time, you know, was when during the riots, I got shot right in the forehead, came through my helmet. The bullet, I still to this day have, you know, little indentation in the middle of my forehead where, you know, I had been shot. The bullet was obviously fired from probably a block or two away, but it went right through the helmet and the bullet actually, you know, put a little hole in my head, but didn't, you know, didn't go in any further. Another time when I was a policeman, I remember running up into one of those three flats and there was a man with a gun. And as I ran up, here's a guy with a shotgun. As I turned, he pulls the trigger and it didn't go. I just jumped over to the side of it and got away. But there were a couple of other times when I should have been killed and I wasn't. And I began thinking there's a reason. There's a reason why when Rick Borelli was was going to kill me and I managed to, you know, and, and that didn't happen. But strange feelings over a period of time. And, and now I was getting to the point where at this stage, I'm having dreams too about my father, where my father is telling me, you know, you wasted your God-given talents on these people, you know, meaning mobsters, because he despised, he despised the mobsters. And then this time I started thinking, this is my, this is why, you know, why I haven't been killed so I can do something like this. And, you know, when when they asked me in court, you know, why did you do it? I would never tell them that because they think that's all bullshit. You know, they would think that, you know, it's a story I'm telling. As I said, that's what uh, made me finally realize uh, and that that's what probably drew me up to the way it was. Because as I said many times, I didn't plan that day on going up to see Gary Shapiro. Uh, something, something as I'm walking by the building just made me go up there. This moment with Marcy where he gives you a directive and talks to you like you're his, his underling or an employee uh, no, rubs you the yeah, wrong way? Ordering. Again, my grandfather was killed by the mob. My grand my grandfather was a policeman, uh, you know, and my father told me that on his deathbed. As we, and I didn't realize that. And I knew his father was a policeman, and I knew his father was killed in the line of duty. When my father was in the hospital, and he was he was dying at that time, he had what, what probably was Alzheimer's, but they called it something different. Uh, you know, he said to me, so now what he didn't know was I had broken away from these people years before. I never told anybody that when, you know, when I broke away from Johnny. And uh, as far as he knew, I was still, you know, partners and, and representing different mobsters on different things. And he said to me, son, he said, your grandfather was killed by these people. I said, what? He said, and, and the case was fixed. He said the case was fixed, and that's when he and that's when he told me you shouldn't be using your God-given talents to, to help these people. I had no idea what he's talking about. At that time, he was going through you know Alzheimer's and, and was was acting real strange and whatever. After that, I talked to my brother Bill, and Bill was into all the family stuff, and uh, and Bill said, yeah, he said uh, you know I've got all the reports. He was killed by uh, by somebody over there by the Lexington Hotel. It was over right by the Lexington Hotel, which was Al Capone's headquarters. The case was fixed. It went to trial, and the mobster in the case was fixed. When was this in relationship to this Marcy encounter in the hallway? Is it within months, years? Oh, no. My grandfather was killed. No, no, I'm talking about your father telling you this on his deathbed. Oh, no, it was... Uh, the I'm trying, I'm trying to think. It was uh, it was afterwards. No, no I'm, well, it I'm might, not it, it must have been after. But but your father on his deathbed makes 
not a confession. He tells you more details to fill in the gaps about the rumors about what happened to your grandfather. And then that that is a moment of enlightenment for you because you realize that you are in business with these people who killed your grandfather not the exact people but the same operation and so this begins to kind of bother you obviously prior to that whole thing with mike colella i was disgusted with those people i had believed that the bullshit that they talked about with the mob you can't kill somebody unless you get permission and the rest of it i don't know if it really was but at that time that's why i was so furious at these people especially like johnny senior who treated me like i was his kid it was just one of the things that build up and build up over a period of time when I thought about doing it, then I thought, what am I, crazy? Look at the life I've got. Look at the power I have here. Look at the money I have. Everything in the world is unbelievable. And I'd be giving all that up to do it. I just said, what are you, crazy? And I wouldn't do it. And I didn't do it. After I went up that one time and told them that I'm willing to cooperate, and, you know, I felt like I had jumped off that building and you can't, nothing you can do about it. You committed, I felt I committed suicide after I did that. Especially when I found out that Gary Shapiro worked under Volucas and Volucas was going to be told that I had come in there and offered to cooperate. Did you think that there was any, knowing that Volucas was there, was there any way for you to avoid him being involved? I mean, it seemed like an impossibility. The, the reason I went up to see Gary Shapiro, and I didn't know Gary at the time, there was a strike force that was in charge of organized crime. I felt they worked out of Washington. I would never have gone in. There's no way I would ever have gone in there and talked to Palookas because I knew he was from Jenner and Black. And it all panned out. After I find out, when I talked to Gary Shapiro, he said, the first thing I said to Gary was, you know, hi, I'm, you know, I'm Bob Cooley. You know, there was a girl. And it was either a weekend or a holiday. I think it might have been a holiday because the building was basically empty. I remember having to go in there and uh, there was a security guy out in front and there was basically nobody in the lobby. It was not a, you know, it was not a regular working day. And again, I went up to the strike force office. I asked where it was and there was a girl at the window and uh, nobody else in there, but one girl at the window. And I said, you know, who's in charge? And she said, uh, Gary Shapiro. And I said, is he in? And she said, you know, yes, he is. Who's, you know, who's calling or who's here? And I said, you know, Bob Cooley. And, you know, wait a second. And then I go back and that's the first time I meet Terry Shapiro. And, uh, you know, I just said, you know, I want to talk to you. You know, what's up? I was considering possibly uh, cooperating and helping you people clean up the court system. And and he looks at me and, you know, obviously he was pretty much shot. And I just said, well, I'd, I'd like to help you. I said, but before I can help you, I want you to check and make sure that there's no cases on me. Well, what do you mean? I said, he said, why? What, what do you think? Or what case do you think there might be? And I said, I'm sure there's none. I said, I can't help you. If, I, if it turns out I had cases that somebody was trying to work on me, because Greylord is going on during this time. I said, well, we don't have any cases. And I said, well, check with the uh, with the state and check with the, you know, round. And I said, and if I don't have any cases, you know, I could possibly, I'd like to talk to you and I can possibly help you clean up the court system. And he said, okay. And we were there, we talked maybe for about 10, 15 minutes. And he kept prodding me. Well, like, what, you know, what, why do you think you have a problem? What case are you talking about? He thinks he's going to elicit some I, guilt out of you. He thinks, again, he thinks that I, I think I have a problem. I, he had to know who I was. You know, I wasn't exactly a secret there in Chicago. I leave now. After I got in the elevator and I'm going down, and he said to me, and this scared the living hell out of me, 
And before I leave, he says, well, uh, you know, I'll have to talk to, uh, I'm going to talk to uh, Anton Belukas. I said, you're going to talk to Anton Belukas. He said, well, yeah, he's my boss. And, and I was terrified. I thought I committed suicide because I knew he was with gender and block. I knew that, you know, they represented the mob, the top mob people I'm talking about. And, uh, and I thought I committed suicide. I thought I was a dead man. Pat Marcy and the others, you know, they talked before about their guy over there when he was fixing things for him. Sullivan, Tom Sullivan. I knew that Anton Palukas had come from, from Jenner and Block. And I knew Jenner and Block was getting millions of dollars of business from the city through Pat Marcy and Eddie Burke at the time, who was the uh, chairman of all the things that Palukas did afterwards, other than thank God. He could have gotten me killed telling Rich Daly what I was doing. He tells Rich Daly, who is the state's attorney, if Rich Daly had told Dagnan or the other people that, you know, that basically controlled him, I would have been a dead man. But like I say, he did so many things that could have gotten me killed, you know, and did all he could to stop me, you know, wanted to have me plead guilty to something ahead of time. So but I'm just saying and then when it's all over and done with, you know, he protects Eddie Burke. So it's business as usual there. What the hell could I do? He's their boss. He's the guy in charge. What he wanted to do, I'm sure his sole purpose was to protect all these mob people and mainly to protect the first ward because that's where they're getting all their business. They're getting millions of dollars of city work. That's a scam in itself, too. When they have corporation councils that are supposed to be doing that work, they've been doing it for years and all the way up to the present day, I'm sure they do it. Eddie Burke was the one because he's the chairman of the finance committee. He would make the decision as to what law firms would get the city work. And we're talking millions, millions and millions of dollars over the years of contracts. But he wanted to protect these people. Initially, I was told I could not wear a wire on Pat Marcy, and I could not wear a wire you know, on any of those first ward people. I couldn't wear a wire on Eddie Burke. I was told I couldn't. And the reason, quote unquote, was because it was too dangerous. I'm wearing a wire on these other people who are mobsters. He was doing all he could to keep these people in, in a position where, you know, where his firm, Jenner and Block, would be making all this money and would continue to. Now me, I didn't want any of their money because I'm thinking in terms of when I'm on trial, it's my credibility because I have to talk about things that happened years before with no other evidence other than me saying it, including the case with Harry Alleman, the uh, defense lawyer as well. You know, they, they were paying you, right? And you get paid more if you do, if you build cases. In other words, they would be testing you. You had no money. You were busted. You were a gambler. You lost all your money. You came in here for fear of your life and the rest of that crap. And I wanted to prevent that. So I didn't want to take their money. I could have, you know, I didn't want their money in terms of paying off some of the gambling debts. I would have handled that myself. But now when he tells me I can't do the federal work, that's where I was making you know, tens of thousands of dollars on, on, on those cases. I could understand maybe that being the case. And now I'm told after about you know four or five months and after I'm wearing this wire on different people you can't do any you can't do any criminal work whatsoever I'm still making thousands of dollars still got a tremendous business build up with that and now I've got another problem where I'm not able to handle this work and how do I explain to these people well you know I'm a criminal lawyer not doing any criminal work when he tells me he told Richie Daly, all the people over there in the office, I told you before, Mike Ficaro is, is still in charge of organized crime. If he tells any of these people, you know, about me, I'm dead.
So, like I say, I'm I'm working with all kinds of handicaps now. I still told them I don't want any money. My concern is I have to be successful in all my cases or all I did is for nothing. If I didn't convict Pat Marcy and the others that were connected with the top of the first ward, it would have been business as usual within a couple of months afterwards. My life as I knew it is over. And that's why, too, I kept wanting to find new ways and new things, you know, to new cases to work on. They wanted me to leave. They wanted me to pack up and leave when they were told that uh, supposedly they, they, they had information that I was going to be killed. I just said, I can't leave. I don't want to leave. I'm, having, I'm still having a great time here. Uh, I'm still living a real good a real good life. But of course, I got a lot of things going on in my head at the same time. So that day that you walk by their office and decide to go up to talk to somebody was done on a whim. You may have had these thoughts and you were growing disgusted and you had, I don't know if turmoil is the right word, but you had a, a, a kind of a crisis of conscience to some degree with your father telling you about your grandfather. But when you actually walk by the office, this is not pre-planned. You're not going, hey, next Tuesday at 10 a.m., I'm going to get all my stuff together for my office and go up there. You just do it on a whim. But when you do it and you're up there, you, you have a sickness or a sense of this was a huge fucking mistake. Absolutely. In fact, I had gone to Alan Ackerman's office and I played gin. It was a Saturday. I remember when I went up there, uh, I got there somewhat early. I was in one of the other offices and I was doing my gambling stuff. When I left there, I was going to get a corned beef sandwich over at Dill Pickle. The Dill Pickle was over there under the under the L tracks over there on, on Dearborn, where they had a Jewish place where they had great corned beef. I was going to get my corned beef sandwich and I'm walking by the building and something at that moment you know, made me go in there. I don't know what it was. Like I say, uh, something made me decide, you know, because I had, I told you before a number of times I had thought about, I had thought about putting an end to, you know, putting an end to the, the power that the first ward had. Uh, and, and, and it just happened that way. Back to the trial of the female cop, the defendant. That uh, he got in trouble again after that. And I was told he wound up and he wound up in the penitentiary. Somebody told me that. I don't know if that was true or not, but somebody did tell me that. His dad's contact with Pat Marcy turned out to be this guy, Nunzio. Nunzio was the guy's name. I think a probation officer or the head probation officer, he had some big job there. And I'm sure he did it to make some money. I'm sure he got he got a piece of the action, you know, for whatever Pat charged on that. And I think the joke was too when he paid me too. You know, it was only about three or four thousand. I think it might have been like three thousand or twenty five hundred, some minuscule amount. Uh, what was it with that? Was that just Marcy stuck in like a previous decade? You know what I mean? These 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 like absurdly low, you know, amounts of money. I mean, I know we talked about it a little bit, but it, but maybe we're beating a dead horse here. Was it Marcy just caught in a previous decade, or it was just like you should be so lucky that uh, I'm getting you work? No, it's not Mary getting me work. It doesn't no because I'm not getting any. I never got paid in any of the cases, the gambling cases that he gave me. He never paid me anything on the other cases. He would, you know, what he did, what what did happen, he would bring me, you know, the case. They raided a card room in Cicero. 
and he brings me the uh, the paperwork and tells me, you know, can you handle, you know, I want you to handle this. Okay, no problem. And I never, I never gave him a fee in it. But again, there were 50 defendants on the case. And so I walk into court, you know, and the, the policemen, like I said, we're good friends of mine. I walk into court. I was out of there in about 10 minutes. And what I did wind up doing was I took all their bonds. The 50 of them had, you know, had a $100 bond, which is worth $90. I got all their bonds. So that's 4500 bucks, And I got 45 or 50 new clients. Because what I would always do with all these cases, I used to carry maybe 50, 100 cards all the time because I pass them out. So each of these guys has, you know, two or three of my cards and they run around and tell everybody about it. That's how I build up a tremendous law practice. I told you before, I never charged any of the ward people for any, you know, for any of their things. But, but you no, know, Pat Marcy, their whole world was money. That's all they, that's all they talked about. Maywood Park was a racetrack in Melrose Park. Right, it does not, Avenue. and it does not exist anymore. It's been leveled. Was that a mafia-run, owned, controlled? Yes, facility? absolutely. The sheriff Dvorak, when Dvorak was named the sheriff, you know, supposedly a Republican. He's what they did in Chicago and in a lot of areas in Illinois. All the Republicans, you know, the vast majority of the Republicans that were, you know, that were brought in there to, you know, to oversee the elections and the rest, they were all Democrats. They would just register as a Republican. Dvorak was a uh, was a Democrat who registered as a Republican and ran for sheriff, and they made him the sheriff. He used to meet on every Friday night upstairs. They had a dining room there. In the, uh, in the second floor, there was a dining area, you know, overlooking the track. And he would sit there at the table with Johnny uh, DeFranzo. They would sit there right at the table every Friday. This is the sheriff. I did a little digging on Dvorak, and I'm sure you know, and not much digging, actually. Googled and, and or duck, duck, goad and got to the Tribune. And he was sentenced at one point to three and a half years in prison for taking bribes while he was the undersheriff. But here's the great quote from him. Dvorak had been a dedicated Chicago police detective for 25 years and a good husband and father. Here's the quote, and I quote, it's only when I became a politician that I lost my way, unquote. <laughs> Before he became a politician, he was probably an upstanding no, citizen. No I mean, was, such- there's no question the sheriffs, 90, 90% of the sheriffs in there were as corrupt as could be. They were all on the payroll, wanted to be in the payroll. They made a lot of their guys sheriffs so you could carry a gun. And the reason they wanted them carrying guns was so when they would go out to do the hits, they would usually, in fact, you know, they arrested that one there for killing, uh, for killing, uh, what do you call it, the Chinaman, trying to kill the Chinaman, Kenito. Oh, yes. Remember? Remember when Kenito got shot? I in the vaguely back of the remember. Head? Yeah, t- let's talk about that for a moment. We'll, we'll go back to Maywood Park, but talk about Kenito for a moment. You know, kind of, you know, he was a he was a, a uh, what do you call it, Chinese. He 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 worked under Caesar under Devarco. He was connected with his crew over there with the near north side with the near north side uh, you know crew and doing all their and with all their gambling with all their he he ran he ran a couple of the card rooms over there in the Rush Street area. He also had some major. He was a major uh, bookmaker. He had a number of bookmakers working for him. Ito just to make a slight adjustment. Ito was known as Tokyo Joe. Right. And and there's a, a derogatory term here for him that I won't repeat in Wikipedia. I'm surprised they published it. I guess I can say it. It's Tokyo Joe and the Jap, which I think these days is politically incorrect, but 
it's on Wikipedia, and there's about as left-wing as it gets, so we can say it. He was a Japanese-American mobster with a Chicago outfit and eventually an FBI informant who ran into uh, I mean, gambling. yeah, Japanese, not Chinese. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Talk about the hit on him. Well, they had, there was a deputy sheriff and the second guy. I knew both of them. I can't think of their names right now. I knew both of them. Both of them hung out at the club. They were, both of them were, were there over at Marco's club all the time. And at that time, they were over on Grand Avenue. What happened was they picked them up. They picked them up at a, at a restaurant or something. And uh, when they got into the car, tried to shoot him and shot him in the back of the head. J- Jasper the, Campisi and John Gattuso? You know, yeah, that's it. That, that's that's it, right. I knew both of them. The, one of them sat behind him, and when he shot him in the back of the head, they had him in the front, you know, in the front passenger side. They, when he shot him in the back of the head, it was cheaper old ammunition, and, and it didn't kill him. And he gets out of the car and he runs. Uh, but again, that's why they, they liked having these these guys as sheriffs. So they had to, you know, if, if they got stopped for any reason and, you know, the other police stop and they show their badge and they probably let them go. And if not, they have a right to be carrying a gun. So um, are you saying they, that Camp, Campisi and Gattuso were sheriffs? One of them was a sheriff, yeah. One of them was a deputy and was a Cook County sheriff. I told you before about one of the burglars who I saw when I went to the Maywood courthouse and I walk in and he's one of those that are, you know, stopping people. And uh, he says, look at me, I got a gun. <laughs> he says, I'm a sheriff now. And, you know, he's laughing, you know, with his with his record, with his rap sheet. You know, he was a professional burglar. The, the mob there in Chicago probably had a hundred or more people that, you know, that uh, they made sheriffs just to give them a gun. So they had the right to carry a gun out there if they got stopped. Let's talk and, about and, Maywood Park. Let's go back to that for a moment. Were these types of institutions or facilities, I should say, this is a racetrack. Was this a place that was conceived? You may not know the detailed history, but some of the history were these these places that the mob goes, hey, let's create a racetrack and, you know, front facing it's legitimate, but really we're, we're rigging the races? Or was it an institution that they would come and take over that was already established? Well, in Maywood, in Maywood in particular, uh, Jim, you had uh, Jimmy Andreacci. Jimmy Andreacci was Joe Andreacci. Joe Andreacci was one of the main bosses there with the Elmwood Park crew. He had his own crew of people. His brother was Jimmy Andreacci, who became a close friend of mine. In fact, when when I was working with the feds, uh, you know, and I couldn't and I couldn't practice law and whatever, you know, I spent a lot of time out there in Maywood. Uh, in Maywood you know, at the table with Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy was the one that gave out juice loans to the drivers there, to the drivers and the workers there at the racetrack and to the owners. So, and he was the one that uh, was involved when they were fixing. They were fixing races there. They were doing it constantly. Why? In fact, it was ironic, both there and also at Sportsman's Park and at Hawthorne, at all three places. Uh, they basically, the Hawthorne was owned by the Carey brothers. Uh, the, the football coach from Notre Dame and and uh, the Carey family owned uh, Hawthorne, but uh, you, but you had a number of the mob guys that basically ran everything there. In fact, that's where I got the fed, a lot of the feds. I brought a lot of the feds in there and introduced them as friends of mine, federal agents, when I was working undercover and showed them what they were doing. They were they were booking there at the track too. There was more money bet with their bookmate with their bookies there than was going through the windows. In fact, I would I was making bets with these people. Uh, when I was working with the feds, I was making bets with them uh, rather than going to the window, because if you bet like a thousand dollars on the place or show, it, it would only wind up paying like five cents on the dollar because it would, the, the pool was only about three or four thousand at that time, you know, years ago. 
so you bet with a bookmaker, and that way you get the track the track odds, which you know would be a lot more you know in your favor because you know that money wasn't going through the windows. They used it as one of their many many money making operations. Uh, it was real difficult to bug them, and they felt secure talking up there. That they were having those tables tested and, you know, tested with, they had a number of investigators that would come in and constantly test the club and other places where they would be all the time. A lot of times they'd have them tested almost every day. You mean sweeping the place for bugs? Yeah. They'd come in there and check to make sure there weren't bugs. They would do it, you know, they were very, very conscious like that. They were very security conscious like that. But they were making money, a lot of money, because the ones who were booking there were paying them to book there. I remember the stories of these racetracks. I remember the fire at Arlington Park. That was one place where they wouldn't. That was the only park that they couldn't go into and play games in. Every other park, they basically controlled. Why couldn't they get in there? Because of the owner. The owner owner wouldn't allow it. In these other big racetracks, most of them had sheriff, off-duty sheriffs and off-duty policemen. And the ones who were working, they were working for the mob. They weren't working for them. They were all, they were making more, they were getting more from the mob, you know, for letting them do what they were doing, you know, than they were getting from the racetracks. When I was working with the feds, I called over there at, at Hawthorne and uh, asked to talk to Tony Carey, who I knew. You know, I disguised my voice and I said, I just wanted you to know that those security guys you got are all on the payroll of the mob because that's when they were investigating corruption at the racetrack. There was, there was only one time. That, you know, that I did get involved and I never did afterwards because of what happened. It was at uh, Sportsman's Park. I'm there with Jimmy because when Maywood was closed, he'd be over there at Sportsman's at night. He, he was always betting and he was always playing games with the different, you know, with the different drivers and the rest of it. And he told me we've got, it was a stormy, it was a real stormy night. And he said, it's a perfect night tonight. He said, 10th race, he said, we're going to fix the uh, Superfecto. He said, uh, you know, if you want to get into it, it's going to cost you, it's going to cost you. 500. We've got four people, you know, with the top horses. A couple of them are going to break and the other two will be busy blocking people. He said, there's only one who doesn't want to be involved. He's worried because they were, at that time, they were talking about investigating the corruption and the fixing of races. He said, the only way we can possibly lose would be if this, and this horse hasn't got a chance, he said. We're going to be covering every single play. They would not come in better than third, if that. And the only way we could lose is if this it was the one horse that he was going off at like 30 to one. He's not going to play a game. Well, you know what happened. <laughs> All kinds of craziness, a couple of broken this and that. Who wins the race but the number one? <laughs> it was the only way. But he told me straight. He said, you know, he, he doesn't want to be involved in it, but we can't see him winning. But no, they were playing all kinds of games over there. We're going to stop there. That's the conclusion of Conversation 12. Stay connected and follow us for Conversation 13. 13 will be the direct aftermath of Bob leaving the task force offices when he gets a visit from the FBI.